You're about to get an up-close look at the future of automotive technology. This is AutoLine. Even though General Motors has been through an unbelievable amount of turmoil lately, the show must go on. It still has to invest billions of dollars every year on research and development. That is especially true today, where the race is on to develop the next generation of engines and fuels for tomorrow's cars. Technologies like advanced batteries and fuel cells. And to get a better understanding of what's going to drive that technological development, I've invited Dr. Alan Taub in for today's show, who was recently named as the vice president of R&D at General Motors. And joining me on my journalist panel are Sam Abulsamid of Autoblog.com and Paul Eisenstein of the DetroitBureau.com. You're about to learn a lot more about the technology that will be powering tomorrow's cars, and we'll be back to kick off that discussion right after this. Visit our website for even more great content all week long. Autoline Daily. John's Journal, podcasts, and even more. So click over and get your all-access pass to the automotive industry at AutolineDetroit.tv. From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. Welcome to this edition of AutoLine Detroit, where our guest today is Dr. Alan Taub, the Vice President of All Research and Development at General Motors. Great having you here back on AutoLine Detroit. It's a pleasure to be back, John. Also joining us today are Sam Abulsamid from Autoblog.com and Paul Eisenstein from the DetroitBureau.com. Great having you guys here as well. Pleasure to be here with you. Okay, Alan, you brought in some pretty interesting props here, and you got to explain to us and the audience, what is this all about? Why'd you bring in what you've got here? Well, I think you're aware of our advanced propulsion strategy in the company. Everything from improving the internal combustion engine, partial electrification with hybridization. But I thought what we could talk about today is what we see as the end game, which is full electrification of the vehicle. You know we're doing the Volt. You know we have our Equinox fuel cell fleet out. So the question is, what's behind the guts of storing energy on the vehicle if it's in the form of electricity instead of the form of gasoline? And I thought I'd just compare and contrast batteries and fuel cell. Here's a battery cell, typical of the kind we'd be putting on the Volt. Now, why is this flat? And most people would look at that and go, this is a battery? I mean, it's as flat as a pancake. Well, first of all, there are two ways to make batteries. You can wind them cylindrically. So, you know, you see a little Duracell so like battery. A, what you're you're, you're a conventional flashlight batteries. Yeah. Yeah. For package reasons, and also there's some tricks we're learning about being able to compress the material, about why the prismatic appears to be the better design. And that's what you mean when it's flat? It's prismatic, prismatic is the collection of flat sheets. Okay. And, what's, and that's what's in here is a bunch of flat sheets? Yep. And that has some advantages for space utilization, but it has some disadvantages for heating and cooling, too. Yeah, except, as I'll show, our fuel cell system is also, by its nature, a collection of flat cells. And in fact, the temperature, the thermal management, so many common characteristics. As you know, we're vertically integrated into pack manufacture. We're going to buy the cells. Mm -hmm. We actually put the same engineering team and the same research team on the thermal management of the battery pack that we had on the fuel cell. 
Um, so what the, you're saying is that when you get into a fuel cell or a battery, when you get into the guts of it, as you call it, a lot of similarities. Yeah, and key, here's a fuel cell equivalent stack, about the same power as you'd see there. What's common about them other than the fact they're long and flat? They're made up inside of lots of thin sheets. Here's an electrode in a battery. And you're basically stacking these up in here. You put separators between them. And this is a lineup of those. In the fuel cell stack, it's the same phenomenon. It's all about thin sheets. These are structural members, and they carry the electrons, and they hold the thing together. All the actions here. So, so what are the common challenges about this? Number one, you got to handle lots of thin material and assemble them. And that's expensive. There's lots of processing in there. You need extreme quality control. In a fuel cell vehicle like our Equinox or, or similar would be in the Chevy Volt, you've got about 10 square meters about this, about the size of the studio. In the battery, you've got 20 times more the nature of the material. And so lots of costs associated with handling the thin materials. And then, of course, the, the materials that make it up itself. I mean, traditionally, you know, you've got a century of experience with making engines. The, the mechanics of putting together an engine are well known and, and pretty basic. And you've got more, more flexibility and tolerances. You don't have that with these types of materials, right? Yeah, and well, remember, uh, GM used to be in the electronics business right, before Delphi spinoff. And the fact is, we're purchasing cells. We've learned how to potentially be vertically integrated in the fuel cell stack, where we have our operation in Honeyell Falls. The key is there are people who know how to make and handle this. We, you know, Will will buy this component. Um, still questionable who will do the coding. But the key is this is a cooperative event with us, universities, suppliers, just going after ways to make this robust and affordable. And what you seem to be saying is, as long as you're going after fuel cells and batteries, your engineers can play around with the same sort of issues. You, you're, what you're saying is these two technologies are very synergistic. Yeah, the way I like to put it is our vehicle engineers, have declared our vehicles electron source agnostic. So what do I mean by that? In one system, you've got a hydrogen storage tank and a fuel cell stack. In the other cell system, we have this collection of battery cells and a battery pack and module. After that, the power electronics, the motors, the way it actually, if you look at our Voltec architecture, these two systems in total are about the same package size. So the question is, why are we going after both? Two reasons, number one, Question, which one of these, by time we're at Gen 3 technology and million units a year, is really going to meet the cost for value to consumer? But the other point is, in our view of the end game, you need both technologies. This is not an either or, this is an why, and why, 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 uh, why do you need both? Okay. Let's start with the fuel cell stack. Right. This device stacked up is where the hydrogen comes in, the air comes in. If you remember from your physics days in school, I always have to go back to physics, you stuck the electrodes in water and hydrogen, you run that in reverse and you got a fuel cell. You stack these up, and not that that's simple, but where do you get the hydrogen from? That's where the energy is, here's where the electrons are made. It's in a hydrogen storage tank. 
today we make out of carbon fiber wounding and hydrogen. If I want to add range, I make my tank a little bigger, pump more lightweight hydrogen in it. Once my real weight is in the stack and all the hardware around the tank. So if I want to go 200 miles, maybe I need three kilograms of hydrogen. I want to go 300 miles, I add another kilogram of hydrogen. I'm not adding tremendous weight to the vehicle. What happens in batteries? This is both the electron generator and the energy storage mechanism. So if I want to go, meaning it's both a power and an energy battery, and all wrapped in one. If I want to add range or if I want to go to a heavier vehicle, I have to add more cells. So what happens is the weight of the system and the size of the system in batteries goes almost linearly. So how do we see this playing out? For small vehicles or large vehicles with limited range, this is a terrific technology. If I want to go to heavier vehicles, if I want to go to full range, I've got hydrogen. They both could be made from a large number of energy sources. And what we don't see is the world's energy carriers proliferating, right? We see a world where there's electricity, hydrogen, and some liquid fuels delivered to your house or delivered to service stations, and vehicle architectures where other than the electron source, the rest of the vehicle, we get to have common, common bomb, right? So we can deliver economy of scale. Why are you so bullish, though, on fuel cells when they're really, for all practical purposes, for transportation purposes, no infrastructure? It's, it's going to take a massive involvement or a massive investment, I mean to say, at a time when the country and just about every state is flat broke. Well, first of all, if you look at the hydrogen infrastructure, it will probably look close to what we have today, centralized service stations, because we can get the, you pull up to the pump, and in fact, there's one over in Inkster, you know, if you get a chance. We can fill the hydrogen tank, and close to the same time, you can fill it with gas. Here, I have longer charging times. So how does that play out? The fact is, I need a hydrogen infrastructure, but I don't need a hydrogen filling station at every house and every car. Here, I need an infrastructure. In the end, I have to bring the plug to within five feet of the vehicle. So both of these require an infrastructure to be built. We're going out with the Volt first because for the beginning of the infrastructure, it's there. But not everybody has a plug. And by the way, there'll be the question of, is the consumer going to opt for a 110 or a 220 charge? And the fact is, on hydrogen, we've been working with some of the energy companies, um, fuel filling stations here. And our analyses with those partners is that to get the beginning of the infrastructure in a few cities with enough stations to get in between cities, it's a manageable investment. That's, uh, that's debatable. When you look at what Germany is betting on, is that you need a nationwide infrastructure. They're putting in, what, a thousand service stations which will handle both hydrogen and electric charging. Yep. And that's, I think they said, a billion and a half dollar investment, but that's a thousand, a thousand centers in a, a country that's just the size of, say, Oregon. So if we wanted to have truly open mobility with, high, uh, with, with these high-tech uh, power sources, how many would we need in the U.S.? What would the investment be here? Well, again, we have our numbers for that. And 
you know, I've seen the comparison. And I'll be honest, I always get a little concerned when the OEM does the analysis and say, here's what the energy company is going to have to invest. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know more of that. Our yeah, somebody else to yeah. spend the money. But, right. but, but, but here's the point, Paul. The vehicle is a recurring cost. Right? In this future world, and let's assume the vehicle car park's going to go back on track and we're looking at that time frame and looking at 100 million vehicles produced a year. That's a recurring investment. My infrastructure is a one-time. The best system solution looks at the one-time cost of the infrastructure amortized and compared against the differential cost of the two vehicles. Um, if we want to have a zero tailpipe option for large vehicles with full range. Right now, we just don't see the path to do this with one caveat, the extended range electric vehicle. A biofueled era, our extended range electric. Your volt for most The volt is an approach to that. My view is... Um, first of all, if you start to try to go to larger vehicles, I, I still run into this battery scaling problem. And the question is, why aren't we carrying both infrastructures in order to optimize the vehicle solutions? Right? It, it is, that's why this is a partnership. Right? It's got to be electric companies, energy companies, OEMs. The supply base isn't quite ready for this. Um, and our analyses say, if you look at the amortized investment on the vehicle, on the infrastructure, and our Gen 3 high-volume cost comparisons for these two systems, they're competitive and will fill different niches in that market. Well, one, one, question, one question a lot of EV advocates raise, or more precisely, uh, plug-in advocates, is do, do mainstream customers actually need a full-range vehicle all the time for you know, 80 or 90 percent of purposes, you know, do people actually need a vehicle that goes three or 400 miles? You know, most of the time they can go, you know, 40 or 50 miles, and, you know, a BEV would be perfectly adequate for that. And, you know, there's a reason we picked the 40-mile range for the Volt. That wasn't an accident. We, we, we looked at how people use it, and our goal is, you know, as you've heard others say, hopefully some part of the population will never turn on their uh, range-extending engine. The question is, I think, even broader than that, if you want to get into it. Today's definition of personal mobility is individual ownership of the vehicle. A large capital investment that all of us make, 10, 12-year total lifetime, although we may not hold on to it that long. Think of its capacity utilization. Think how often it's actually you're sitting in it and using it. Are we looking at a world of shared mobility or personal ownership? Are we looking at a world, if it's personal ownership, where I'm going to have my small commuter vehicle and my full capacity vehicle in my garage? Or am I going to you know, rent one or the other for a daily? I think the wonderful part of this for me is clearly we're on the verge of a technology revolution. But I think our whole industry business model is undergoing as big a change. Urban mobility in megacities is just going to be very different requirement than suburbs, than rural, 
Well, the technology is actually changing faster than what customers will probably change. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, it's, that it's like... That a good question, John. I don't mean to cut you off, but Sam raised a very good point. You used the word need, and there's a big issue between what people want and need. I call it the over the meadow and through the woods syndrome. Yeah. People always want to be able to go to grandma's house 300 miles away, even if it's just once a year. Most of us can get away with two seaters that go 40 to 60 miles. We want seven-seaters that can carry a half ton of cargo and can go cross-country. And the biggest question is, can we get people to buy vehicles based on actual need versus this sort of blurry want and perceived need, which is very different? To me, this is analogous to the argument in the industry that we've got to go to a build-to-order uh, model in the industry, that we could take out all kinds of inventory and cost. If we could only get American consumers, instead of rushing out and buying a car immediately, if they would only wait a month, two months to get the car they want. And these arguments always come from manufacturing and engineering people in the industry who think that the public should change, and the public's not going to change. change. And I think to your point of, do they need more than 40, range, 40 miles a day range? Absolutely not. The vast majority don't. But you ask anybody, would you buy an electric car with a 100-mile range? Forget the 40. Go to 100. And they go, no way. I'm not buying a car that only goes 100 miles. And, you know, if you look at it from, you know, as you mentioned, capacity utilization, if, if you know, you were able to get consumers to uh, change their habits and buy, you know, a, a 50 or 60 or 100-mile EV, plug-in EV, uh, and use that for most of their needs and then have shared transportation for those other times when they actually need to go two, three, four hundred miles, go on a road trip. At that point, you know, the number of vehicles you actually need to go those longer distances dwindles dramatically. And, you know, you could continue using liquid fuels for those vehicles, for that much smaller number of vehicles. And if you, if you look at it from that perspective, do you even need to go down that path of hydrogen and the, the infrastructure and the development of hydrogen vehicles? Well, first of all, I think in the end, you know, we're the new GM consumer focused, right? The consumer is going to be the one that makes these decisions, not us. I look at our challenge is to try to deliver them in a cost-effective manner, meaning a value that they'll make the purchase, can we go to guilt-free, right? energy diversity, wean ourselves off petroleum, clean up the tailpipe emission problem. By the way, we can talk about crash and autonomous driving lane. Will that require a change in their habits so that we give them a commuter option and do it? Or are we able to push the technologies, including light weighting, including modular builds, so that I can maybe even, you know, look like we had in the avalanche, you know, close it or open up the trunk bed? Can I keep the same model they've grown accustomed to and solve our societal needs and do it at the right price? I think if the answer to that is no, then we should try explore coaching them into a multi-vehicle usage. You know, you, it's interesting. You called it build to order. I hadn't thought about it. It's used to order. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the only thing I think that is going to significantly change public behavior is real high gas prices. I'm not talking mm -hmm. four bucks a gallon now. I'm talking six, seven, eight dollars a gallon. Only that, I believe, is, is what would really get the American public to change 
its behavior in that regard. Well, so that or incentives, dollar incentives. We saw it in a short order with ca uh, cash for clunkers. Amazing what shift we saw. But as soon as it ended, but it's, it's a right temporary. The it's, a, it's a temporary phenomenon. And if you're going to have, if you're going to drive people into a permanent change, you've got to find some way to fund that. And that's, you know, it's it's one thing, you know, to get the, you know, to go, you know, beyond the the fir the, the people on the bleeding edge who are going to buy uh, plug-in vehicles, and then get others, you know, uh, a larger segment of the population into plug-ins. Right. You know, but then how do you sustain that? You know, how, how do you fund that? on a sustainable basis, and I'm not sure that's possible. Well, and again, what, what we drive to is in, in nature of our industry. I'm not talking about the OnStar part, which goes through cycles every 18 months, but, you know, the hardware on vehicles, propulsion systems. You've got to go through three generations of learning to really make the technology affordable. That takes at least a decade, right? Our goal is to try to make this breakthrough technology affordable. I agree with you, not at $40 a barrel and $2 a gallon. I'm not sure we have to go all the way to $8 a gallon and $200 a barrel. I think our goal is, what's the end, what, what's our objective? Keep mobility affordable, but given the growth of the car park, I mean, we've been remarkable. On, you know, you measure weeks' work to buy a car. That's just been getting better and better and mm -hmm. better. Can the world sustain a one billion vehicle car park? Because we're on our way there. Not the way we have them today. This is one of the sustainability solutions. Crash-free driving, which, by the way, not only saves lives, but it'll let us take weight off the vehicle. Um, if I was going to pick what, what's our agenda in you know, the research lab, and the tech, I lead the tech, advanced technology in GM as well. Take the vehicle out of the environmental debate. Diversify our energy source so we're no longer 98% captive on petroleum. Not zero death, zero crash. And particularly for the megacities, solve the congestion problem. Right? Mm -hmm. This is one element in the portfolio. I think what we're doing in this second century of the industry and in this next two decades, we're reinventing the product that has provided personal mobility to hundreds of millions of people, right? You go and look anywhere in the world when someone can afford a vehicle, they choose it, right? Vehicle ownership scales with per capita income. Our challenge is, can we continue to deliver what people seem to want, but do it sustainably? And then while I'm at it, make it got to have, right? All the great styling, all the great other enablers. Uh, I can't imagine a better time to be in the industry, <laughs> As, despite the financial problem. Remember, I'm on the technical side yeah, of this. Yeah, right. you know, here's, a, here's a question, uh, and it may seem obvious, but I think there's some depth to the, to the question of whether this is the ultimate competitive battle of the next, uh, say, two decades. And we need a quick answer. We're down to the very end here. The advanced propulsion system is one battleground, what I call electrification of the vehicle. The electronification of the vehicle is having as big a change. The connected vehicle, the infotainment, 
all the adaptability of the vehicle, and maybe we'll be back for that segment. And we're going to have to. Actually, we're going to leave the cameras rolling. I'm going to be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. But Dr. Alan Taub, thanks so much for coming on this broadcast version of AutoLine Detroit. Great having you here again. Terrific. Thank you. Sam, great having you here. Paul, you guys as well. And like I said, I'll be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. Visit our website for even more great content all week long. AutoLine Daily, John's Journal, podcasts, and even more. So click over and get your all-access pass to the automotive industry at AutoLineDetroit.tv. Well, we certainly covered a lot of territory in today's show with Dr. Tom, but we're going to be doing another show with him in the not-too-distant future because as comprehensive as today's discussion was, we only scratched the surface. And by the way, we've got a great way of keeping up on the top breaking news in the global automotive industry. We call it AutoLine Daily. It's a seven minute webcast that covers the latest news that's coming out in the industry, no matter where that news is happening. You can watch it at AutoLineDaily.com or you can even sign up for our free newsletter and have it emailed to you every day. And then on Thursday nights, we do the first live weekly webcast that's ever been done in the auto industry to get the behind the scenes information of what's going on. The kind of stuff that's typically off the record. Highly opinionated with blunt commentary, we call it AutoLine After Hours. But that wraps up this show. For all of us here at AutoLine Detroit, thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.